You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hello, friends. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. Today's guest is Nancy Berger, fear strategist. Nancy shares with us her experience living with an eating disorder, which began in her teen years. She describes the very moment that she developed that eating disorder and how she lived with that through most of her adult life. She also shares her experience with bipolar disorder, which actually wasn't diagnosed until later in life, which is somewhat unusual. And she talks to us about that. And she talks to us about an experience where she almost got a DWI and how that experience really turned things around for her. And then we get to what she actually does for a living and how she helps people to overcome fear-based thinking. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And just so you know, when we first started out, I did not intend for the first section to be part of the interview, but it was so good that I left it in. So I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Nancy. Hello, Christina. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm do you good. like Do you like my exciting backdrop of nothing? <laughs> you know, sometimes nothing is better than a big old mess. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what it was. That's what it is. Well, look, look, look. Ah. Oh, books. I love books. Because we just moved and the bookshelf, I didn't have the peg things. I'm like, I'm just putting it on the floor. Otherwise, it looked like my head was in a box. No, this is good, actually. I almost kind of like just all white back there. Yeah, it works. It's fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, some days are better than others. <laughs> I, I hear you. I am. Um, I, I went through this thing yesterday. You might have seen a post I put um, where I said, basically, don't compare yourself to others because yeah. I feel like I do fall into this trap sometimes of, oh, everybody else is doing so great. They're making like all this money and and they look so great and they're all skinny and they're having, you know, they don't ever get a pimple. And I'm like, OK, this is Instagram. Everybody looks good on Instagram. Everybody's reality show. That's it. Yeah. And so I almost want to sometimes just post a picture of myself, like when I get a pimple or with it, without a filter or something like right. that, just to be like, why are we all doing this? Why do we all have to be perfect on here? I, there's no value in perfection. Right. I have this discussion with my daughter all the time. Oh, but everybody's got it all to get. No, no, they don't post. No, they don't. They don't post the really crappy days. But then you get the other people who bring it to the other extreme and they're like a hot mess and they're oh. posting, you know, how their boyfriend beat them up yesterday. I mean, not that like that's a terrible thing, but there are some things I think maybe need to be private. I agree. And like when you're going to rant, why don't you rant to a close friend who knows you and understands your heart, but like to get this angry, all this just toxicity all over the. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to bring this up later, but I, I, there's something you say that I 
think in my head all the time. And it's when you say, um, stop shooting on yourself. Yeah. Because it's so true. You know, I, I can't, yeah. I constantly think, oh, I should have done this. I should have done this. I, sh I should be more like that person or whatever. And it's, um, it's really kind of toxic. It is. And, and it is absolutely, that's a thing. It's like absolutely changeable. It's just like, you got to practice. Yeah. Y you know, you can, I mean, practicing makes so much difference and then you just automatically have different thoughts about it, but it just takes practice like anything, you know? Well, another one I thought of, which you might've said this, I, I don't think I've heard you say this, but you might've is not only should you not shit on yourself, but I don't want other people shitting on me. No, absolutely. Because like, that's a real thing. It's a real thing. Like, I don't, I don't know that people understand the power of words, really. I, I mean, it's astounding to me as a parent, the difference it makes the words you choose when you speak to your children. And that's, I use that example because it's very powerful. You're molding their, their humanity. And I choose very carefully how I, and when you're always like, well, you should have done, and what, and what do you think? Is that what you're going to wear? Why don't you, why aren't you more like your, I mean, people don't know how, uh, what an effect that has on another human. I know it does because the implication there is that you're doing something wrong. Right. And right. some of these things, a lot of these things, it's just someone else's opinion. Yes. But we internalize it and then think, oh, well, maybe they're right. And so all of those, when you go to, well, maybe they're right. And oh, maybe, I maybe I should be making more money or maybe I should be skinnier. It's like, how about I get to be just exactly as I am? Isn't that great? Like you can yeah. just as easily say that. To yeah, well, actually what I posted yesterday was, you know, there's, there's people doing better than you whatever that means. Yeah. But there are people doing worse. Also, whatever that means, because I don't want to pass judgment on somebody else and, and where they are in, in their development. You're where you're supposed to be. You're where you're supposed to be. That's what I try to tell myself. Yeah. And every time now I fuck something up, I now automatically think, I just don't know it yet, but that's the way it was supposed to go for some reason, which I will figure out eventually. Used to be, oh, just, just hating on myself and how could you do that? You're so stupid and, you know. No, I was probably supposed to do that. And, and I, you know, I'm a singer. So I remember years ago, I was singing with a band and I got into that thing where I was comparing myself to all these other singers. And the guitarist that was working with me at the time said, Nancy, there will always be someone who sings better than you. And there will always, you'll always sing better than somebody else. But no one will sing exactly like you ever. That's true. And I'll never forgot it. I never forgot it. it. And it applies to everything. No one's you. So you are unique. Like it's like when you think about it that way, it kind of changes your context. It changes your perspective. Yeah, it does. And you know what I think too sometimes is like Bob Dylan is a terrible singer. Oh, he's a horrible singer. But yeah. look at him, right? Oh my, his lyric lyricist, I mean, as a lyricist, <laughs> yeah. 
I know, but it's like he got famous singing. How did that happen? I know. And then I'm a really bad singer. But then every once in a while, I think, I don't know. I mean, Bob Dylan is a singer. I mean, exactly. <laughs> if he can do it. You know who else is really a bad singer? I might get killed for this because I am I live in New Jersey. But Bruce Springsteen. He is not a good singer, people. He's no. not. But he's got so much passion. And he's got so much, like, grit. And there's just something about it. I have an, a lot of respect for him, which I didn't ever as a younger woman. But man, that guy, he just, he kept doing it. Yeah, yeah. And he did it his way. And the, when you do it your way, the right people are drawn to you, you know? Mm, it's so true. And I do like him for the record. I'm a, I'm a Springsteen fan, but I recognize that he yeah. doesn't have a great singing voice. Right. So we kind of just break, like went right into the interview and I feel like I'm just going to leave this in, you know, for people who are listening yeah. or watching, like this wasn't even, we weren't even supposed to be starting yet, but th that's what it is. You just um, pick, you, you pick what you like, you do what you do. Yeah. Like this is the best part when you get to really eavesdrop on somebody's conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, of course there'll be an introduction for you on the po actual podcast, but um you are Nancy Berger, fear strategist. And I want to get more into that at some point, you know, what exactly you do and how you got into that. But I've interviewed you in the past in, in other settings. And then I looked at your, this sounds terrible, but I looked at your about page, like after I interviewed you <laughs> and I started reading and all, saw all this really juicy stuff. And I'm like, how in the hell did I not look at this before? I mean, this is the meat right here. This is what we're supposed to be talking about because yeah. I love to get all up in people's business. That's well, wake up call. It's a pretty apropos, right? Yeah. I mean, and you had, it sounds like more, way more than one wake up call. And just to give people some of the highlights, you got a DWI in your life. Almost. Almost. Okay. So we'll talk about that. And so, but you had an intense experience there Yes. and you were diagnosed bipolar mm -hmm. and I, we got to talk about this stuff because those aren't like small experiences, right? No, they're not small experiences and they are not experiences that I chose to share on a whim. They were, they're deeply personal. And when I launched my consultancy uh, two, three years ago, I made that choice to share that information, but it was difficult. It was a difficult choice. And I got a lot of flack from some people that are close to me about doing it. And therein lies the issue. I wanted to normalize a conversation about mental health. I wanted to normalize a conversation about how stuff happens to people all the time and in speaking about it and showing transparency we can bolster each other and help others maybe reduce some suffering so so it was not an easy decision but one that i made in earnest well i've heard this expression that your mess is your message right so a lot of times and it kind of goes back to this whole instagram thing we were talking about when yeah. we first started talking 
is that everything's always supposed to look perfect. We always put our best foot forward. You know, I've always got my pretty face on. You don't see the pimple or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, only only my good side gets shown, you know, which I've decided is my, I think, yeah, my left side. And it's it's so ridiculous. It's like, why are we all doing that? So for you, those things that maybe initially you were like, oh, I got to hide these, you know, like nobody wants to. I'm not going to talk about being bipolar. I'm not going to talk about, you know, getting pulled over um, because it's not pretty, but oh, it is no. what makes us human. And then I forgot to mention, um, you also have experience with an eating disorder too. Yeah. Yeah. That was a formative. I mean, that started at age 15. I remember the day. I remember the day it started where I was standing, what happened. And uh, it it dogged me until my late forties. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And those are tough. You know, eating disorders are tough to treat, and the longer you have them, the tougher they are. Um, but again, it was it was just I was so immersed in fear about so many things that I think it fueled the the disorder and. But ultimately, I did the work and stuck with it and was able to absolutely cure it. I mean, it's gone. So and tell I me never... about that moment. Tell us about that. It wasn't a moment so much as it was a, an iterative process with a really, really talented, skilled uh, therapist who specialized in eating disorders. So, you know, and, and, and you know, was with, I'm still with her and was with her for almost 12 years at least a decade before I started to see change. And there were days when I said, this is just never gonna work. I'm never going to feel comfortable in my skin. I'm never going to feel uh, excited to eat or happy about having a full stomach or enjoy food. I'm just not gonna. And I remember just, she said, you're doing the work, keep doing the work. You're doing the work, keep doing the work. And I did. And there were days I just thought I wanted to give up, but. I did, and but it wasn't. I wasn't on a single track, so it's important to understand that this was also the therapist treating me for bipolar disorder. I was there was a confluence of things that happened in my life that got me to a place where I was ready to look all of my fear-based thinking in the face, and that's when real change happened. And that's why I do this work because it's that important. Once you understand how you're wired and how these fear-based thoughts are so wo woven into your fabric, then that's when change happened. So things started to click. Like I started to understand my brain, you know, function. I understood my chemistry a little bit better. I really dug in and learned, you know, what the eating disorder was really about because it's never about food or about looking good in a pair of jeans. It's about much more than that. So I started to look at all of this together and uh, and I made headway. And then suddenly I started to feel less and less intimidated by myself. I was more comfortable in my skin. I was happy to wear sh clothes that fit instead of hiding, you know. So it's just little thing, but it was almost like, it's almost like when you ride a bike, you're learning to ride a bike, you're on the bike with the training wheels and you're sure you're never gonna be able to take them off. And it's like when you take the training wheels off and all of a sudden you're flying down the street and you're like, how is this happening? Because little shifts were happening all along. You just didn't know it because you kept rocking back and forth on those wheels, right? It's kind of like that.
Yeah. Well, I want to go back even further because you said that you can remember that there was a, a moment for you when um, I, I don't want to, you know, take your words. I'm not repeating them exactly as you said them, but but there was this moment when you um, not realized you had an eating disorder or like, when did it start? Because you just referenced that earlier. Yeah, on. I was 15 years old. I was living in Europe. We were transferred with my dad's job. I was living in Europe and my a family member, uh, you know, ridiculed, said, you're, you're getting a little chunky. And um, then asked another family member uh, if they agreed with that assessment. And there was a resounding yes. So I remember standing there and suddenly wanting to disappear, you know, wanting to just evaporate. I was humiliated, ashamed. I had never thought about it before. I just remember we got there, we lived in Holland and I was like, you know, tasting all the new things and, and, and enjoying myself. And I was also, you know, in puberty. So my body was changing a little bit and but in that moment, I wanted to disappear. And, and I went and got a pad of paper and I wrote down everything I ate that day. And I promised myself I would write down everything I put in my mouth from that moment on. And I would not go above, I don't know, a thousand calories or whatever it was. And I didn't know what I was doing to my brain, but I was becoming like getting myself in a restrictive mindset. And, an, and, a, and a black and white pattern of thinking there so that if I went over that calorie count or I ate something that was bad, like a cookie, uh, the whole thing would be, and I started this pattern of, you know, binge purge, like all that stuff. I didn't even know what it was or what it was called, but that those are the patterns I started. So then I just got really skinny and then got really high. It was a disaster. So I'm like, like that for for years and years and years and years through college, through getting married, through having babies. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We had to talk about that, uh, but I don't know a lot about eating disorders. Um, so I want to understand, you know, what else was going, what was the family dynamic at the time? Because I'm thinking how could someone who was perfectly normal, which I'm putting in finger quotes, be driven to anorexia and bulimia just because of one statement. I mean, were, did, were you in an environment that was loving and warm and encouraging and nurturing and all of that? Or were there other things that were going on there too? Yeah, there's, it's not, it is not a um, straightforward kind of calculus. So Yes, I, I was in a loving family. You know, I had a, I, my mom was a stay at home mom. She took care of us. She loved us, my sister and I. She just, you know, a phenomenal mother, a dad who loved, you know, very traditional family, uh, family values, very strong, you know. Now, having said that, you know, we all come into the world with our own sort of the, our soul as it is. And the way we sort of filter the world is unique to us, right? So my, my parents were strict, uh, you know, and my, and, and, and very extremely loving, but certain, there were, there was a focus on aesthetic. There was a focus on physical beauty, um, which was generationally appropriate. I mean, my mom, you know, grew up in the forties and thirties, right? 
So she was very, that was, that was my toolbox, right? You're, you're pretty that you want to keep that. You want to be pretty, you know, and that's not to say she didn't encourage me. You know, I went to college, I had a career in finance, you know, she was, she was, she was proud of, of my accomplishments, but she really did focus on that. So I, I don't blame anybody because I correlated, right? Success with mom being happy with that. I have small clothes. You know, it's not, it's not mom, mom's fault. She, this is how I interpreted and digested our dynamic. And, um, and I took it to, you know, to a level that was very unhealthy for me. Uh, and, and my sister, I, I don't know if it had the same effect on my sister, um, but she, you know, I didn't really talk about it with her and I was ashamed of how I felt about it. So I kept it to myself. And that's a recipe for a little bit of a recipe for disaster because you, you know, when you're ashamed, you just carry that around and you just want to medicate yourself. And what do you medicate yourself with when you're 15? You know, food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so was this something that just kind of happens like literally almost immediately? I mean, that's the way it sounded when you explained it. Yeah, it, it did. It was like a switch flipping for me that moment. And I remember I wrote down pork chop. I don't, it's the first thing I remember writing down. I ate a pork chop because it was in the afternoon and I think I had that for lunch or something. And I wrote it down and to this day, I can see that yellow paper and that thing. And I, every day, every day, and I was applauded by, by, you know, my, my mom, she was like, you know, cause it was discipline. And, you know, then I started running and, you know, I was really, and she really thought that that was commendable, which then, right. It, it just, it cemented the, the whole pattern. But the problem with that is it's not sustainable, right? So when you get super hungry, which when you're an active young teenager, you do, and then you eat, I felt guilty. And then the guilt would turn into shame, which turned into depression. And I didn't know at the time that I had wild mood swings. My bipolar was diagnosed at age 40. I didn't know it. I thought I was the only one that had these mood swings. And and there's also interaction between those two things because your brain chemistry changes when you withhold food and you become hungry. So I was triggering my own, you know, swings. It was, I was, a, it was a little bit of a dumpster fire, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of funny. You can look at it that way and, and use that expression. Um, but did there come a point when people in your family noticed, like, did they notice, first of all, a really uh, significant extreme weight loss? And also, did they notice weird eating habits? Yeah, so the withholding and the restriction was actually commended, right? So I didn't want, oh, okay, yeah, good, good for you. That's a, that a girl, like, yeah, I'm behind you. So my, my poor mom, I mean, my mom was trying to be supportive and do her best. Um, she didn't know what was going on in my brain. And I'm not even sure she would have understood it. That really wasn't something at the time that was recognized. I mean, Karen Carpenter was, right? Remember who brought yeah. it into focus. But before that, they were like, so um, so the restriction was commended. And, and then when I gained weight, which inevitably I did up and down because I would get so hungry. And then I would just say, well, I've ruined everything now. So I would just eat everything and then put on weight never like extreme, extreme, but enough that it was noticeable and that was not commended. So, and then I remember I went overseas to, to have a semester abroad in Italy of all places. 
and I really put on weight because I was grappling with homesickness and just feeling like, you know, when you have an eating disorder and you're not comfortable in your skin, you don't really embrace adventure. You kind of want to be in a rigid regime of exercise and, and restrictive eating. So like going to Europe, like I wasn't really wasn't enjoying the sightseeing and enjoying the experience like my peers were. So I just, I put on a lot of weight. And when I came home, I, there was some serious ridicule from extended family members who kind of poked fun at me. And um, they didn't mean to be, you know, mean, but uh, it was destructive. And and then it just started a whole pattern again. So there was just a lot of a lot of uh, vacillating between, you know, skinny, heavy and just never calm or peaceful in my in my brain. There was just oh, I was looking for the next thing that was going to fix me. And it just wasn't around the corner ever until I really started doing serious work. So I, I was going to say maybe when you went to Italy, but it sounds like this wasn't the case. You were kind of like, woohoo, you know, there's nobody watching me. I can eat what I want. Was it sort of like that or it was a reaction to stress? It was a reaction to stress and, and, and unfamiliar uh, surroundings. And also like, you know, I had a boyfriend that was in the States and I was away from him. And, and, and as a young woman in Italy, there was a lot of attention. It was just a very confusing time. And I felt crazy. You know, I really felt crazy. And I use that term. I don't, I use it carefully because I don't like the term, but that's how I was thinking about myself. I was like, there's something wrong with me and nobody knows it. And I don't even know what it is. So I just kept plowing forward, you know, and, and that, that's why I think it's important to talk about this stuff because for, for young people, for any people who are dealing with this, it's so much better when you can speak of it and get support and help. And the first person you go see is not always the best fit for you. I mean, I went to Renfrew, I was an outpatient at Renfrew and that just wasn't a good fit for me. I was in a support group working it just wasn't the right fit. I mean, I had to keep trying different practitioners and clinicians until I found the right fit. Um, but I think it's important for people to know it's not a curse you have to live with your whole life. If you find the right person and you get the right help and do the work, you know, yeah. do the work. Well, it's really interesting. It's interesting to me, um, probably because I spend a lot of time observing and thinking about my own relationship with food, which for me is not to restrict myself. Um, You know, for me, it's more like being a stress eater and then having the guilt and, you know, the shooting on myself, like, Oh, I can't believe you ate that. You know, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have self-control on you? And that's, it's disgusting. You just ate like an entire bag of potato chips or whatever. And, you know, saying things to myself that I would never say to someone else. Right. You know, I think about my seven-year-old goddaughter, I would never say something like that to her. Like just the thought of it is sickening to me that I would say things to myself that I would never say to her. I would never want to hurt her feelings or right. make her feel, um, you know, any less than the wonderful person that she is. So why is it okay for me to say that to myself? And I, I'm not alone. I mean, we all know that women in our culture 
have so much pressure to be beautiful, whatever that means. You know, we could have another hour conversation about what yes. that even is. Um, but certainly in the U.S., it's to being thin. Yeah. And what's so great about it? You know, I mean, really, really, what's so great about it? Like I have been so thin in my life. Like I had three sets of clothes in my closet at all times from zeros to uh, on up. Right. And when I was the skinniest I've ever been, scary skinny, I wasn't any happier. I was not any more confident. Why? Because I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop, that I was going to gain weight, right? There was so much meaning attached to it. Oh, well, you have to stay like this. So you better be super hungry and run the extra three miles and do the, it takes over your life. It's like, what's so great about it? Yeah, now right. I like have been the same weight for probably, I don't know, eight or nine years. I'm 60 years old. Like I sometimes stand in front of the mirror and just look at, you know, things are moving around and they're not the way. And I just talk to my, I say, you know, I'm so grateful for this body that is working well, that is healthy, that is still moving around and enjoying life. And I'm so grateful for you. I actually like talk to myself, but it's important. Like, and, and, and another thing, Christina, is like when you were talking about, you know, stress eating and how we do this stuff, mindfulness is a really important, has been a very important part of my healing. And by mindfulness, because it's thrown around a lot, this term, but in within this context, it means this. When I'm having, when I'm eating food, I actually, I don't do anything else while I'm eating it. And I think about the food in my body and what it's doing. Even if it's a bowl of potato chips or like three cookies or whatever it is, or like, you know, at Easter time, there's certain chocolates that I just, and I just eat them and I think about them in my body. And I tell this to my daughter, who's very conscious about what she eats. And since she was little, I was very careful about not, you know, I did not want to pass this down to her. So I said, there's foods that are really super healthy for your body. And there's foods that are more healthy for your soul. And when you eat a food that you feel might not be as healthy for your body, know that it's really healthy for your soul. It's not a good, bad thing. It's a just how it, how it kind of works. And when you, when I'm eating an extra, you know, half a bar of chocolate, I just feel it like feeding my soul. And, and that mindfulness really helped me get over this black and white binary thinking about good foods, bad foods. You know, it's just like, no. Yeah. I'm so glad we're talking about this. It's very timely for me because I uh, mentioned my goddaughter and I had her last weekend and all she wanted to eat was McDonald's and ice cream and, you know, all the junk food, but she doesn't want to eat her chicken and broccoli. And I really struggle with that because all I think to myself is, oh God, she's going to be fat. Like if she just keeps eating like that, she's going to be fat. And, you know, going back to all the things we're talking about, oh, she's going to be fat. And that means that she's not going to be desirable and, and people are going to judge her and she's not going to be pretty. And, you know, she's not going to be all the wonderful things that we're all supposed to be, which you can only have if you're thin, not if you're fat. And 
it's really, I'm realizing now, especially as we're talking about this, those are my issues. Well, we all do that, right? We project our own issues. But let me ask you a question now. So then how would you address that? Just let's say you were in a position to address that with her, right? I mean, you wouldn't, I mean, this is probably her mom's bailiwick, but if, if well, she actually, you- just, just so you know, um, I know, you know, my business partner, John, it's his, and so he's gay. He's got, has a husband. And so that's their daughter and oh. I'm her godmother. So she doesn't have a mom, you know, per se, but, um, and so I do feel like I have been appointed as her, you know, female role model, which I'm happy to, and very happy to take on that role. So, um, so that's the dynamic. Okay. So then what would you, how would you counsel her? Well, I'm thinking back how I did counsel her and I'm not really thinking it was the best thing to say because I, when she does it, I know what I'm thinking, but I don't want to say it to her. And I don't really want to use the word fat because I don't want that to be on her, her mind now. Um, but I did tell her at some point that, you know, we have to eat healthy. And then I realized, but does she even know what the hell that means? How old you know, is she? Is, she's about to be eight in June. Oh, yeah. She knows what that means. Okay. So I did say, well, you know, you're, you're really active and you're very young and, you know, you do gymnastics and you have all this activity and energy. But, um, you know, the, these foods don't really have nutrients, and you do want to eat f- food that has, have nutrients in them. And, you know, some of this other stuff is like, it's fun. And yes, you know, I eat it too, but you want to limit that. And, but I, the word fat did come out of my mouth, which I'm not proud of. And I did say at some point that, you know, if you just ate McDonald's and ice cream, like every single day, you know, you would eventually, when, when you're a grown up, you'll get fat and, being fat isn't healthy. You know, it's like people who have typically have other health problems when they have extra weight. So it's, you know, that's why we want you to develop good habits now because you're not going to just eat McDonald's. And then all of a sudden one day it's like, oh, well, I guess I'm a certain age and I really can't eat McDonald's anymore. Right. And I think you, you know, I don't, I wouldn't, I mean, you, you're hard on yourself. I wouldn't be hard on, on, you did a good job with that. You really circled back to health. Yeah. The the fat word is like a, yeah, yeah, it's charged, emotionally charged, but you did it. You did circle back to health. And I think that's the key is educating them, educating them. So yeah, this really tastes good. And, you know, and, you know, it's great for fun and for a treat and, you know, but our bodies need really good fuel so we can do all the things we want to do. And we get really good fuel from nutrient packed foods and these are not nutrient. So you, you, you are educating her. And I think that's the best way to do it. When my kids were young, I knew so many parents who had nothing in the house that was considered a bad food, like no cookies, no candy, no chips, no soda, no, 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 just nothing. And those kids, and I early on, because of my own struggles, decided we were going to have a cupboard in my kitchen full of junk, like, like replete with junk. Like there was every conceivable thing in there. And I, because I didn't want to tell them they couldn't have it. Whenever their friends came over, where do you think the first place they went was? The junk closet. The the, the, the junk. They wanted to camp out and eat 
And my kids would be like, can we go play now? Like they didn't bother with it. They had a few and then they left mm, it alone. That's interesting. So they developed, you know, portion, like they developed uh, an approach to food because it was there. They weren't told they couldn't have it. And I suspected that it might desensitize them to it. And it did. But these other kids just. So I'm not saying I'm, I'm such a smart parent. It's just because I mm. was so afraid of them developing disordered eating patterns. No, that that's just, interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think you might be right about that because I grew up in a household too where there wasn't a lot of junk food. And I remember the big thing was soda. We really didn't have soda in the house. And I would always go to my cousin's house and they had all this junk food. And I'd be like, oh my God, you're so lucky. You can yeah. drink soda every day. And I would have soda. So I think I, I think I, I feel you on that. I think there's something to that. Yeah. And I think also like with kids, you know, it's, there's a continuum of feedback that you give them, right? So you bolster them with self-confidence in many ways by, by telling them they are accepted as they are, exactly as they are. Even if you're feeling like they might be going down a road that's not best for them, you keep talking. Like, like my son, we talk about it today. He's 26 now, but he was, he was not a thin kid. He was a big kid, you know, very athletic, but, but big, like carrying extra weight throughout his youth. And he loved, he, he wasn't a great, he didn't like vegetables. He never, like, he didn't eat greens. Like it was, his dad and I were like, are we doing a bad job? Like, what is going to happen? Like, I was worried about his heart and his, you know, he, and he went to college and junior year of college, he lost six, 50 pounds, 60 pounds, something like that. He was always athletic and active. He was just a big kid. Lost Does he all eat this vegetables weight. now? Oh yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah he, I went to lunch with him the other day. We had to eat in the car because of COVID. We were out in the car by this grocery store. We like their deli. And he comes out with his sandwich and then he takes out one of those big plastic tubs full of spinach, baby spinach with a fork. Wow. Like, who are you? And what have you done with my son? Like, yeah. He, so like they find their way, but I think it's so important that we educate them back to the, educate them, accept them as they are, validate them as they are. Keep the discussion going. It's not to say you don't talk about, keep the discussion going and then hope it eventually kind of weaves its way in. And I think men, most of the time it does, but if they feel like they're ridiculed and judged by you, that can be a sticky wicket, right? Yeah. I'm going to be more mindful of that. Um, thank you for that. And, and I do worry about her not eating vegetables. So I, the, this whole parenting thing and, and I'm her godmother, so I don't have her all the time. And I'm just like, man, this is, this is hard, this it's stuff. Hard. Like, it's and I'm only teaching job. her about eating, yeah. you know? Yes. So. And that's just eating. I know it's the hardest job. And when you want to talk about fear-based thinking, I mean, you know, on my clubhouse room, I often end up talking about parenting and parenting dynamics and, and how those words matter and how you interact with your children, whether they're young or old. And we had this whole clubhouse thing talking about sex with your adult children. I mean, there's just so talk about fear based. <laughs> so, I know. You know, there's just a lot to, it's the hardest job I've ever done. And I've had some, and the most important. Yes. There's nothing better. There's nothing. I mean, I, you know, now they're both adults. I parent them I still co-parent with their dad. We're divorced, but we co-parent still just in a different way. 
and, you know, watching them struggle, watching them go through milestones, watching them lose jobs, get jobs. I mean, it just changes, but it's always, you're never the same, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I commend all the parents out there because it's, it's not an easy job at all. And, and I know people just love when somebody who doesn't have kids has all these parenting opinions, <laughs> but, um, I, I give everybody credit because it, it's just it, knowing what to do and when to do it and what to say and all of that. I mean, it's just impossible. You know, you, you just can't, nobody's going to know. It's a journey for sure. <laughs> yes. For sure. Um, but so I want to go back to um, talking about the eating disorder because I feel like, you know, my very limited experience with it um, and what I know is probably based a little too much on media and, you know, television shows and things like that. And, and I envision, and I don't think I'm probably different than a lot of other people, is you, the woman who's, you know, her her clavicle is sticking out and, and you see her and she looks emaciated and she is, you know, just pushing her food around her plate and, you know, going to the bathroom after she, every time she eats and, and taking laxatives and eventually has to take, take, be taken out of school so she can go to the, the rehab center. I mean, that's my perception based upon media, but can what does it really look like? It's, it, and that's a version of it for sure. I mean, there are people who are, you know, you, you can tell by looking at them that they are starving, right? So that's a version of it for sure. But like most challenges, mental health or physical challenges, there are so many versions, as many as there are people. And let, this is an, this is a strange sort of analogy, but I think about people who struggle with alcoholism. Alcoholics are not all curled up on the street corner with a brown paper bag. There are plethora of highly functional alcoholics, you know, people who live their everyday life and go to work and everything, and then they go to meetings at, at night or not, right? So yeah. it, we have to be careful not to, you know, sort of pigeonhole, like it's not the same for everybody. Now, I never, I was never having to be on IV and, you know, I wasn't that, you know, my bones weren't breaking, you know, I wasn't, I was a person. So, you know, disordered eating takes very many forms and uh, disordered eating patterns don't necessarily mean you have an eating disorder, right? So we have to be careful not to lump people together, but there are many, 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 many different, uh, different faces of, of disordered eating patterns and of eating disorders. You know, I never, like, for instance, I was never technically a bulimic where I purged my, forced myself to purge. I would just exercise. So I was called an exercise bulimic because I would just keep running and running and running until I thought that I had worked off whatever I ate. So there's just so many different versions of it. And that's why like people who, maybe people who are listening thinking, oh, well, you know, that's not me. Well, you might not have an eating disorder, but you might not have a great relationship with food either. And that's worthy of some, some investigation because you can, if you understand the dynamic and how you're, you're, you're relating to food in your life, you can make positive change for yourself. So again, it's like not getting stuck and wrapped up in labels and stuff, but in being curious about yourself and how you can help yourself, right? 
And there's so many resources now, much more than there, there ever were before that you can, you know, talk to somebody and just kind of, you know, think, am I restricting? Am I attaching a lot of meaning to food? Am I enjoying food? Am I looking at it as fuel or am I looking at it as like self-judgment? Like there's, there's, so it's, that's not a clear answer, I know, but it's just not a clear answer. It's different for everybody. Well, when was the first time that you actually thought, I, I think that there's, maybe I'm anorexic or I have an issue with food? Well, I knew, I think I knew I had an issue with food from that very first day where I attached, you know, like, um, either a gold star or, you know, a demerit to whatever I put in my mouth. That, that took all the fun out of food for me. I was just not enjoying it and I never felt good eating or being full. And it's, you know, back to the alcoholism analogy, you, when you're an alcoholic, you can just stop drinking. You can't stop eating, right? Yeah. So when food is, is, is emotionally charged, you can't just cut it out of your life. You know, you have to deal with it on a daily basis or you die. So that was an issue from a very young age. But when my father died in 2004, I literally stopped eating. Like I just stopped eating. He died. It was a tragic loss, brain tumor, very quick, two months. And I just stopped. I just stopped. And I, and it was my way of, I guess, controlling. Cause that's what it is really. You're trying to control things. And I just got so thin that it was, and I didn't even feel like I looked thin. But people were saying to me, like I went to the dentist and he said, are you getting help with this? Pointing at my body. Are you getting help with this? Mm. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, so, you know, you, you kind of have blinders on sometimes. You don't even realize it because, again, you're not embodying yourself in a realistic way, right? You're not really thinking about, and in fact, one of the, one of the exercises I had to do in this workbook, I was working on. I had to sort of stand against a wall and, and outline myself with a piece of chalk. It's like you think you're big no matter what you actually are. It's just you're in sort of this, I hate to use the word coma, but you're almost like in this coma vortex where you're not really experiencing life in a, in a, in a real way. It's dysmorphic, right? Body dysmorphia, where you think you look a way you do not look. So it's a complicated thing. And it's something that if you feel, I would say to try to strip it down for listeners, if you feel like you attach more meaning to what you put in your mouth than maybe is you would think is typical, or if you're not enjoying that part of like, if, if every time you sit down to eat a meal, it's anxiety provoking and you, it deserves a little attention. Doesn't mean you have an eating disorder. Doesn't even necessarily mean you have any kind of disordered eating patterns. But it is a, a dynamic in your brain that deserves some attention and care. That's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, we all deserve to eat without anxiety. Yes, yes, yeah. and like be enjoy being full. Like, oh, now my body is fueled and I can do my day, or I can, you know, or this is just this has just been a knockout meal for done whether or not it fuels my body in a great way. It just knocked me out. It's so good. It's so amazing. Aren't can I? you do that now? I can do that now. I do that oh, now regularly. Good. That's yeah. nice. Um, but then I want to talk about the bipolar diagnosis because I can't imagine that um, the two things were totally unrelated. Like, do you think that there was some overlap? I do. Okay. I do. So when were you diagnosed with 
bipolar. You, I think you said well, not until you were 40. Yeah, yeah. That's I, incredible to me because I always thought that mental illness um, portrayed or presented itself very early in your 20s. That's always been my perception. Yeah, and I think I struggled with this as a young girl, uh, which may have triggered some of the disordered eating patterns because, you know, when you when you experience bipolar um, symptoms, you know, you can get very elevated. And in those elevated times, those times of mania or hypomania or hypomania, whatever, you don't, you're not really hungry. So then that fuels that part and then you, you know, restrict and then, you know, you get into that pattern. And then when you dip into a depressive episode, you know, then you may eat more or so I think the two did kind of fuel each other. But when I was young, I just didn't know. I thought everybody had that experience. And I remember thinking when I went into college, well, thinking about career and getting a job. Well, what do you what do people do on those days when they, you know, get like that? Like, I just assumed everybody was like that and they just dealt with it better. Like, I just didn't know because there was nothing. It wasn't something that was talked about. I yeah. certainly wouldn't talk to my family about it. I was ashamed that I felt this way. And, and at that time in the 70s and 80s, mental health challenges were definitely more stigmatized, right? We have ways to go still, but they were much more stigmatized. So I didn't talk about it. And um, then I, you know, figured, you know, I got a job, started working in finance, worked on Wall Street, you know, was, and I just figured I'd keep moving forward in my life and it would eventually go away. All of it would go away because I would be happy. And it didn't. Then I got married and I thought that would fix, you know, everything. And that didn't. And, you know, and I had a loving, you know, marriage. And then I had children. And it was just like I kept propelling forward in my life just thinking, but I wasn't really looking at myself. And again, that's what brought me to this work. It was when I started looking at myself with a big magnifying glass, like the eating disorder, facing that head on, getting the diagnosis, getting on a cocktail of medications to help uh, stabilize my moods. But again, had to kind of look for the right doctor because I got some doctors that weren't helpful, like that, you know, prescribed antidepressants that actually triggered manic episodes. And that's when the almost DUI came about when I was in a serious and intense manic episode. So like, it was just this journey of keeping, like not giving up on myself, but the real, the real pivotal point was when I said, okay, this is not working. Like I, this is not working. I am not getting better. And then I dug in more, you know, what is it that what is it in your life that's working and what isn't working? And I had to look hard at it. And then I started making decisions to change things. Now, I was on psychotropic meds for 17 years. I am off of them, all of them. I am on no medication for to manage my bipolar. I am medication-free, which is astounding. It took me two years to get off of them. I had to titrate very carefully. But now... And, and that's when I said, wow, okay, so this is possible. And if it's possible for me, it's possible for other people. Imagine if I can shave off some of that suffering, 30 years eating disorder, right? 20 years bipolar diagnosis, 17 years psychotropic meds, 
if I can shave off some of that time for other people, wouldn't that be great? And yeah. I'm not a therapist, but I think that people can can get power, be empowered by another person's story, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I would tell people definitely learn more about that. I don't want anybody who's bipolar going, oh, I'm going to stop taking my no, meds. You Nancy cannot, did it. You cannot stop. Yeah, it has to be under the care of a doctor. And as I said, it took me two years of titration. So you have to be very careful. And you hear these stories all too often of people that are on meds and then they just stop taking them. And it's many times it's because they don't have consistent clinical care, right? They're not going every week to the, they just take the pills, get the prescription, and then don't go back to the doctor. So you have to take responsibility for your mental health for sure. Well, when did you get the bipolar diagnosis and what was going on that led up to that? Uh, I was um, having a lot of mood swings and a lot of weight fluctuation. And it was later that I that I realized and discovered through the care that I have now that those weight fluctuations were triggering major changes in brain chemistry that were triggering manic episodes, right? So now I know that if I get below a certain weight, the tendency is that I'm going to get manic. And it took the care of a really talented, you know, therapist to track that, you know, and, and you know, give me guardrails about, well, you can only weigh yourself once a month and you can, and if it gets below this weight, we have to take a heart, start eating avocados. Like she was really, she really took the reins and said, this is how it's going to go. And I started to learn how my body was working. So a lot of this is science and I'm not trying to make it sound like it's this woohoo, like all of a sudden something magical happened to me. It, I was grinding it out for yeah. year, year after year after year. But I finally got to the place where things were starting to make sense. And I saw the correlations with the eating and the brain activity. And now uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that I have a healthy weight, a healthy food relationship off the meds. And, and, and it doesn't mean I don't have mood swings. I still do, but I'm educated enough in my own, how I tick to know when something's happening and then I can manage it through breathing exercises, yoga, meditation, uh, calming my nervous system. Like the body is an amazing machine and it works the way it works for a reason. So the more you learn about your own, you can manage things a whole lot better than, than you know, just relying on pills or just relying on therapy. You can take the power and really manage your own health. It, re it sounds like it requires a lot of self-awareness. Yes. And I think a lot of people are lacking that because um, you can see it in the person that flips out all the time, right? Like, you know, someone cuts them off on the road and, and they're flipping out or, you know, someone gives them the wrong change at the grocery store and, and they're, they're ready to fight because they think you did it on purpose. And yeah. um, people, I guess, that are very reactive to everything. Yeah. And, and I'll admit, I used to be very reactive um, I think that's something that I, I learned in my household and I don't think I really became more self-aware where I could reduce that significantly because I think I still do it sometimes, but I'm much more aware of it and probably not until my mid thirties, which I look back and I'm like, oh, I wasted all that time being so mad <laughs> all the time. 
But now I'm more self-aware and I understand better. Well, why am I reacting? Why do I want to react that way to that? Why did that trigger me? Why is that bothering me? And it's your own stuff, right? It's always yeah. our own stuff. And that bring, that's a, an interesting point you make because part of this is learning to notice your thoughts, which sounds simpler than it is. It's not simple at all. Um, to notice your thoughts. So when you get triggered, which we all do, now after practicing for many years, and I teach this to, to clients and work in, in, in workshops, notice your thoughts. Like it's a meta approach to your thought because what we do is when we have a thought and it floods us, we just you know buy into it hook, line and sinker. But when you can step aside and notice it, then you can make correlations between your own programming and that reaction and that's powerful because let me let me give an, a quick example like i when when an uh, authority figure would tell me to do something i would get extremely defensive and sometimes offensive and i started to like unravel like go back to my early imprinting and first family dynamics and how and, and how that might have come about and made some important connections that then allowed me to, oh, I'm doing that thing that I do. I'm no, oh, I'm feeling that thing in my stomach that happens when somebody tells me what to do. Uh, that's why I'm doing that. And it, it's tremendously helpful. Like you can deconstruct the whole thing and then shift your reaction. And, and that's the only thing, you're never gonna change how the world is around, you can't control that you can definitely control your response, right? Yeah. And when you change your response, then it teaches the neurons to fire differently. And the more you do it, the more they fire that way. Your nervous system stays calm. Everything changes. But people feel like they're, they're a victim of their own thoughts. But you're not. You're choosing them. Yeah. And I think another thing that's closely related to self-awareness is personal responsibility. Yeah. Because when you get aware... Um, I don't want to say woke. I feel like I don't even know exactly what that means. That's like a big thing right now, right? Is everybody's woke. When you get woke about yourself, I think then you can start to really take responsibility for what you're thinking, how you're reacting to things. Because it would be really easy for me to say, oh, that guy uh, cut me off on the highway. This is, that's why I'm acting like a lunatic, right? Which we, you and I both know is ridiculous. Like somebody else did not make me start acting like a lunatic by cutting me off. Uh, and you start to pay more attention to those things. And then you take, I think you naturally start to take responsibility for, okay, well, how, how am I going to react to this situation now? Well, who's the person that I want to be in the world? You know, do I want to be the person that flips right. out at the grocery store or not? Right. And like, what stories are you telling yourself? It, it all comes back to the stories all yeah. the time. Like, think about the, the last time you had a sticky conversation with somebody and you were sitting and talking and they were reacting or saying something that offended you, say. You, you're, you're writing a story about that. Oh, they mean this and they're thinking that and they're judging me. And you're, it's all narrative. Now, you may have history with that person that supports that narrative to a degree, but it's still narrative. Imagine if you approached every situation like that without writing stories and you absolutely stuck 150% to the facts. And this is another strategy that I teach and is so helpful to people. 
fact versus fiction. And I teach in an, I teach this, this little trick, like an exercise to practice. When you're in the car driving, I don't know if I've told you this before, but this really works. You're in the car driving and somebody cuts you off and you get really enraged. You're writing a story. Like you may not even realize it, but you like, you've pictured them. You, you, you're writing this narrative about why they're doing it and what kind of person they are, depending what bumper stickers they have and oh, you're profiling them. So actively write a different story. I tried this during the election because I was, <laughs> and somebody cut me off certain kind of bumper stickers, certain kind of like optics. And I wrote it and I, I was like, oh my God, Nancy, you are writing it. So I wrote a different story. This person, oh my gosh, they are having, a, they have a stomach bug and they are in a bad situation right now and are gunning it for home and are so afraid that they're going to have an accident. And I, I'm serious. I made this whole story. My nervous system calmed down. I felt so much empathy for this person. I let, I backed off. I let them in. I took my time. Everything slowed down. I was amazed at how effective this was. I teach this in every workshop I do now and people are like, oh my God. That really worked like because we don't even realize we're writing these stories, but we're just projecting and predicting and making all this stuff up. Stick to yeah, the it's true. And I think I have heard you share that before. And it's interesting because if you're I would say to my viewers, if your initial reaction to that is. Well, that how we don't know if they're you know have to go use the bathroom. I mean, right. why would we just assume that? Right. But you also don't know that they're just an asshole either. Right. So you're assuming that. That, that's right. But you have as much of a chance statistically of being right on either side of that. You know what I mean? Any yes. story has the same chance of being correct. Yes. You don't know that person in that car. Yeah. Either way, it's just a story. So I want to, there's so many questions in my head right now, but I want to get to, you know, everything like the big stuff, the big rocks in your life. And I want to hear the story behind that experience where you almost got the DWI. That was, oh, that was such an unfortunate. So I was, I had young children, you know, my, my husband was at home with our young children and I went out for, you know, a girl's night out again, re heavily restricting food, was not eating, was very thin and had, you know, a couple of glasses of wine and um, it was a rainy, misty night. And I, you know, started driving home in my minivan uh, on a windy road because I lived in, at the time in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and was and just didn't didn't negotiate a turn very well, and ended up impaling my minivan on guardrails on this road. And you know, people came running out from the how the old farmhouse like across the street, and there I was, like they called the police, and I had to do a field sobriety test right there in the road, and I failed it like miserably. And I remember sitting, you know, the, the, the officer said, you know, sit in the patrol car. And I just sat there and it was quiet. And I was just waiting. I didn't know what he was doing. And he came back to the car. And, and this story, again, I was very careful about sharing it because I didn't want it to, I know there's people, especially now, there's a lot of emotional charge around law enforcement and different things. And there's people that feel that they are wrongly profiled. And so I want to be careful here. Uh, this was my experience. And there were many things at, 
in play, right? It's a Fairfield County town, affluent town, you know, and there I was with my minivan. The officer came back and he said, I've just searched your car and I don't think this is who you are, right? And, you know, I saw the car seats and Goodnight Moon and the juice boxes and the, you know, what, which doesn't mean I'm necessarily not a criminal because I have that stuff in my car. But this officer talked to me and made this determination and he said, I'm going to save your life tonight, which can be viewed as kind of a, you know, God complex kind of thing. But he didn't deliver yeah. it that way. He was a sympathetic, he was sympathetic to me. And I don't know, for some reason, he thought that this, he was going to keep me from having this experience. So he said, uh, I'm going to give you a ticket and I'm going to drive you home right now. So he was driving me home and lecturing me the entire way. Like, what's going on with you? Why would you do, you have young children at home. Why would you drink and drive? Why would you, do you know that you could have killed yourself or somebody else? Do you, you could have left your children without a mom? Like he really gave me a lecture. And then when we got home, my, my husband at the time was standing on the front step waiting because of course I called him. And, and as we drove up the driveway, the officer said, is this going to be a problem? So like, who knows what story he was creating? Yeah. What does that even life? mean? I don't well, even know he, what that he means. He thought if my husband was going to be angry. Wow. There was uh, yeah, I, would, I want to talk to that cop and find out what, what he's been through in his life exactly. that had all these stories. In That's his it. Everybody's got them, right? So uh, off I went. It was a pivotal moment. I realized I was off the rails for sure. And then things, you know, I really did hunker down after that and start to take a hard look at myself. But and then in years later, I mean, I saw him in the news that he saved some child from drowning in a pool and like he was just a good guy that was trying to do a good thing and I tried to like go to the police station and send him cookies he didn't want anything he didn't want it was just an interesting experience it was almost like a little bit surreal like the universe was just stepping in and saying listen you need a course correction here and we're going to give it to you but um but I think about that all the time like what would have happened if I had gotten arrested well, yeah. I mean, it's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I do believe that things happen to us and there's always a gift in it, but I wonder, you know, if you had been arrested, had a DWI, you know, I don't know what the laws are there, but, or at the time, but you might've had some jail time. You probably would have had your license suspended for a yeah. period of time. Yeah. And um, Mike, and that, you know, that would have been a hard story to tell my kids, you know? Uh, so I'm grateful for that. That was a wake up call for sure. Um, and it wasn't like a wake up call that then everything was great. It set me on a path to figure out how to make myself healthy. And that was in early, like 2002. So it, it wasn't, you know, again, a, a switch flipping. It was, it's time to do the work and, you know, not just not give up on it. And I, and I didn't, but there were days I wanted to, you know. Was, so at that time you still were struggling with disordered eating, right? Mm -hmm. That was still in your life. And were you, you know, 
I don't know the terminology, actively bipolar at the time. You said you were in a manic episode. Yeah, I was in a manic uh, phase for sure that lasted a good long time. And there was a lot of destructive behaviors that came with that. Um, so I then changed doctors. You know, I found, you know, through channels, asking around, trying different therapists. And for me, I got away from psychiatrists uh, as treatment providers and found uh, it was better for me, it was a better fit for me to have a clinical therapist specializing in these struggles I was having and a medication manager that just managed meds and didn't really, didn't really offer clinical therapy. For me, that was a better system uh, and the way our healthcare system is set up um, you know, people go to psychiatrists sometimes and they get medication, right, because they're doctors that can prescribe, but that might not be the best fit for the clinical therapy piece. So it's important to educate yourself and, and take responsibility for your care. Yeah, definitely. And it sounds like you have somebody that's more um, focused on functional medicine. Yeah, holistic approach for sure. Functional medicine. I have learned a tremendous amount about energy medicine techniques. I, I did EMDR therapy, which is a fascinating uh, modality that, you know, accesses both, you know, both hemispheres of the brain and, and offers great, great um, results for people who have any kind of trauma or any kind of like, you know, repetitive churning kind of thought processes. So I've tried and experimented with a lot of things because of the education I've gotten from this therapist and uh, and use these techniques all the time, and now teach these techniques because they were they were life changing. Well, how did your family react when you accepted that you had disordered eating? Because you said that nobody ever really talked about it or seemed to notice, or yeah, you know, they well, never so said, "Sweetie, my... are you anorexic?" Like, so what happened when when you had this diagnosis? My, uh, my, my former husband knew that I had uh, a real struggle with, with food. He, and, and I, you know, I tried to educate him and he tried to educate himself. And, and, and I actually did tell my children when it was appropriate for them, you know, to know uh, in terms that they would understand that, you know, sometimes mom has a little trouble, um, you know, when it comes to food, I get a little bit restrictive or I don't eat enough or I feel bad about myself. Like I explained it to them when they were older. Uh, and, you know, and some like there, you know, when I would go to school to bring cupcakes or whatever to, you know, to do stuff for my kids' classes, like some of their friends would say things like your mom's anorexic or something like that. So because did, you were thin? Yeah, because I was thin. So I did I did have to sort of talk about it. But I was at the time I my son my son had special needs and we were my former husband and I were really trying to manage that uh, journey. So there was an awful lot going on in the house that we were trying to manage. So I didn't highlight that very much. I just said, oh, you know, I'm in a little bit of a funk right now, but it's going to be better and I'm working on it and mom's getting help and all that. So I didn't want to, you know, make too big an issue of it. But as they got older, you know, I did explain more to them. And now that they're adults, they, they know the whole story. Well, that's um, educational for them. It is educational for them. And, you know, Again, it normalizes the conversation. They know about my bipolar diagnosis. It normalizes the conversation. It's like everybody has stuff. 
Yeah. And, and there's no label that you should just, you know, there's, th these are just labels. Everybody should be treated and respected as an individual, but my kids have absolute, they're so tolerant. It's like, Oh, okay. Well they have this or they have that or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think our, I think the younger generation, as much much as we sort of make fun of millennials because they have other issues that we sort of make fun of, they are very accepting of um, you know people who are different. That, that we're all individuals, we have our own stuff, and we're just all trying to live a happy life. That's right? It. They're yeah. like the modern day hippies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and all, they're almost like it's amazing how tolerant like. There's so many right now. There's so many different different things. There's so much different. The landscape is so different, right? And yes. and I'm I'm constantly educated by the younger generations about how to approach all these these walls coming down, right? Whether it's sexuality or whether it's you know uh, uh, you know race or ethnicity, all these different things. They are so like I learn from them every every day. Like, yeah, you know. I know. I'm actually really happy that I have my goddaughter because I think you learn a lot from seeing how people from other segments of society live. And that's not even just uh, people that, you know, maybe are in a different socioeconomic group or just live in another part of the country, which yeah. life can be very different, but people in different age groups, because the way that I experienced, you know, grade school or even high school is so different yeah. than the way that my goddaughter is experiencing grade school just because of technology alone. Yes. And I can't wait when she's in junior high and high school to just see what life is like for, for someone in that age group, because I'm sure it's going to be very different than what I experienced. Yeah. But I do want to know, and you know, you decide like obviously how much detail you want to talk about, but has your family been, you had sort of suggested that your family didn't love that you were being so public about all these things. It wasn't my family, actually. It was friends okay. of mine. So before I shared any of this, I cleared it with my, with my family. I said, this is what I'm planning to share. Uh, are you okay with it? If there's any issue, let's talk about it. So that was not, but like friends of mine would be like, why are you going to share that? You're going to have people hating on you. You're going to get hate. Haters are going to come out of the woodwork. You know that you, you, you're, you're a drunk driver or you're a, you know, a, like a lot of things. And I was like, wow, you have some, th this is triggering to you for some reason. Like there's a either, and I appreciated, you know, the attempt to protect me or whatever it was. Like I tried to just, but ultimately I was just fascinated by how it brought out everybody's stuff. You know, like, why are you going to do that? Like, I, and then I thought, well, maybe are they going to be ashamed to be my friend now? I don't, I don't know. But I had to ultimately just let it all go and say, well, that's their experience because, you know, nobody ever can make you feel anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Make yourself feel whatever you feel. So I said, well, I'm going to let them go, you know, with love. And I respect, you know, thanks for sharing that. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So, you know, it was a, it was a kind of an interesting thing. A few days before the launch of my website, I, I had a, I had a little bit of anxiety, but then I just kept talking to myself and saying, well, you were very careful and chose your words carefully. And the whole point of this is to make people feel less alone. 
and mm. make people feel the humanity, the human connection here. Because how can you teach someone if they don't feel that you have the creds? Those are my creds. Yeah, definitely. Your street cred. You got yeah. some serious street cred. So let's talk about your evolution into, um, from a work perspective, what you do now. What were you doing before? Because obviously you had to go through all these things to be the fear strategist that you are now. Right. So I'm a writer. I've been a writer for 25 years. Um, and I, you know, started my career in finance and then, then started writing, you know, when I uh, got married and had children and was at home. I did business analysis first, writing, and then um, some, you know, other kind of strategic stuff. And then I moved into radio scripts and magazine feature writing. And I've written so many different things over the year, different kinds of content. Um, now, uh, before I launched my, my platform, I have been a financial blogger for four to five years. Um, and so that sort of melds together my finance experience and knowledge and writing. So I, I write about the markets every day for a, a client of mine. So, but so writing is just something that is very easy for me, but this, this idea uh, of becoming a fear strategist was something that was born out of my own evolution as a, as a person, as a woman, as a mother, as a you know sister, as all the things that I that I represent in my life. Because for me, it all comes down to the power in fear, the gift in fear. Like my fear was the thing that informed me more than anything else in my life. People say, well, why did you choose fear? It's like, has negative connotation. It's like a, because it's the thing that once I embraced it, it changed everything in my life, right? Not quickly, but it was really the fear. Like I was afraid to leave my marriage. I was afraid to make that change in my life because my former husband is a really great guy and I didn't have any kind of big dramatic like negative, toxic, like it wasn't that way. It just wasn't working anymore. It felt, didn't feel like it was working anymore for me. Felt like we had drifted apart in a big way. And for many people, I was realizing that, that they just stick it out. It's yeah. because it's, it's, it's easier than changing it. And you, you and I have had this discussion about making that decision. That is a tough decision to make when, you know, there's not violence and there's not cheating and there's not, there was none of that. It was just not working anymore. So that was a huge fear, right? And then I had to figure out what was I afraid of? What people thought, what my children would think, what my family would think, if I would have enough money, what what my former husband would think, if, if anybody would ever love me again, if anybody else would ever love, like it went on and on and on. And I was like, okay, okay. Just like the fears about, you know, what my body looks like in the world or the fears about what people will think of me if I gained what, like they, it just all, it sort of like became this golden, you know, this treasure trove of information. And then I thought that's really what it is. Just the, just so much fear. If you can shift that fear-based thinking, you, the freedom it affords you, the freedom it affords you, and it's at your fingertips all the time. You just have to do it. So I started writing about it, right? And I thought, well, I'll just write a book. I'll just write a book about it. And then I was like, you know what? I We're going to do this differently. I'm going to write content about this for different publications. 
and I'm going to start the conversation that way. And then that turned into, then the, then the pandemic hit like pretty much six months after I launched. So then I just started doing online workshops. I just would do, I just asked anybody that, you know, can I do a workshop? And I did workshops and presentations and just kept talking about it. And the more I did, the more I realized how much of a thing this was that yeah. people would come and they'd be like, yeah, I'm just like afraid of everything. <laughs> and, and it became, then that informed the content, which in turn informed the workshops. And then I wrote an online course, which is launching in June. So these awesome. strategies, yeah, yeah. So to teach the strategies that worked for me, you know, and they're, they're, they're concrete strategies. It's not just like, let's just think positive thoughts. No, there's concrete strategies that, that you can use to shift this thinking. Yeah. And, and I've actually heard coaches saying, you tell me if you agree with this, that you're never going to make fear just completely go away. It's just that it doesn't control your life and your decisions. Right. Again, it goes back to choosing your thoughts. So fear is essential. It's a survival. It's essential. We wouldn't have evolved as a species without fear. It's necessary. But, you know, the fear of the tiger in the room is actually in a completely different part of your brain than the fear that you're going to offend somebody in a conversation at work, right? That's a completely different thing. And in fact, when I launched my website, I did this freebie, like ebook, Five Steps to Difficult Conversations. I can't tell you how many workshops I did on that. Oh, can you do a workshop on this thing? Because this is really an issue. And so many like organizations, work, workplace teams, uh, a holistic moms group I spoke to about the vaccine, like difficult conversations became such a big thing. And I realized, wow, people just have trouble knowing how to start, how to like express themselves, how to speak their truth without, you know, taking on the other person's reaction. So I have been educated over this last year and a half in a big way about how and validated as to how much people struggle with this stuff and how much help they need and want in just you know the simplest like having a conversation that's awkward or you know standing in their power you know being true to themselves it's just not easy that's really big that's huge and i don't want to give your whole course away but can you give us a little teaser is there like one thing like what's one thing yeah. from your course that you could share well, I can share a couple of things. The first thing is the, the, the course is built, every module is built on the one before, right? So the course begins with people mapping out their own fear journey. So I've developed an infographic and I, I teach people to write down, there's road signs and there's a road and then there's the sun and there's rays of the sun. So the road signs are these pivotal parts in their life. And it sometimes takes time to remember and dig in like, oh, remember that time like I tried out for that play? Or remember that time, you know, my colleague said something really like harsh and, and, and mean and whatever. These things, some are little, some are big, but they map out sort of your road signs and then there's areas in, in your life to work on. And that's the bait, that's the, the sort of the cornerstone of the course. We work on that. And then one of the strategies I teach, which is particularly powerful and effective, is called a fear to want strategy. So I have people, I have the students or the workshop participants, clients, take, write down their fear the fear-based thought on an index card. 
you know, pile of index cards, write down your fear-based thoughts. You know, I'm never going to get a job that, you know, supports my family or I'm never going to find a partner or whatever it is. And then on the flip side of that, you write a want. So how would you reword that into a want? I'm afraid, so the fear might be, I'm afraid to tell my partner um, I'm, uh, I think our relationship is suffering. Flip side, I want to create a relationship with my partner that's loving, respectful. What does that do? Like, what's the point? Well, it neuroscientifically completely shifts your brain uh, chemistry in that moment, right? You're going from victim mindset, defensive posturing, to offensive posturing and mindset of intention and purpose. It changes your body. It changes your brain. And, and, and part of my course is I do presentations on the science of fear. So people understand sort of how fear manifests in the body. And there's very interesting science and research behind it. But this fear to want strategy, people are like, and I did it with a, a college entrepreneurship class I was, I was speaking to. And these students, like when they said their want, they were like puffed up, leaning in, suddenly more confident, like, it was really fascinating to watch. So this is a really helpful strategy that people can use and practice and it, and it shifts their body and, and it kind of shifts their whole approach to that thought, whatever it is. I'm going to try that with my goddaughter. So when she says, you know, she sometimes she'll say, I'm stressed, which I sound so funny coming from a seven-year-old. But if she says, I remember one time in particular, she was talking about, some stress that she was feeling in school and they're using zoom right now. And she said that she was afraid that when the teacher would call on her, that she didn't know the answer. Mm, so what would I say to her? So, so what's her name? Sydney. Sydney. When the teacher calls on you, what do you want to happen? And then she'll say, well, I want to have the right answer. Maybe she'll say that. Mm -hmm. Let's reword the whole thing. Let's say it that way. When the teacher calls on me, I want to have the right answer and be confident in you know, whatever words you would use, whatever would resonate with her. When the teacher calls on me, I want to feel powerful and express myself with whatever it is. And, and have her say it a couple times and say, how does that feel different? Does that feel different when you say it that way? It, 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 you'll, you'll probably see a physical manifestation of that. Like she'll you that's what i saw in these young students it was just awesome like but then what if she says i want to have the right answer but what if i don't have the right answer <laughs> like that's where my brain is going right but then again you just keep following the, the email thread right you keep following the string you say i want to have the right answer and i want to do the best i can and if i don't have the right answer i want to learn from that so that the next time i remember it like just keep following the thread with positivity it is just empowering to them. And the more you do it, the more, again, right? She'll get muscle yeah. memory on that and keep doing it. And, yeah, I'm probably tell her friends to do it, which would be hysterical. Yes, it would be. She could be the little coach in her class. I'm really interested in the brain chemistry stuff because I've just been learning more and more about that over the past couple of years. And it, it's really complex. It's complex and it's just fascinating. Like I, you know, people... Many people do understand the difference, but I do spend a little bit of time discerning on the fear piece. You know, the the tiger in the room, you know, when, when people get 
so anxious and panicked and they can't think straight, that's science, right? There's a tiger in the room. Your amygdala gets activated. Your amygdala are two almond-shaped structures on either side of the brainstem. Completely different part of your brain. It, nothing activates the cortex, right? When you're in fight or flight, it's amygdala. The cortex is the logic center, right? The reasoning center. That's why, why, why is that, why is that work that way? Well, think about it. If you stuck your finger on an iron, do you want to think of weigh your options? No. Your cortex shuts down, the amygdala activates, and you pull it back without thinking, right? You can't think when you're in fight or flight. You just don't. So it's an important thing to understand because, you know, people say, well, are you talking about, you know, the fear of heights? No, we're not talking about those kind of fears. I'm talking about the fears that are lodged in the cortex, the things you marinate on, you know, dread, anxiety, you know, stress. Uh, what is, what do they think of me? What do I think of myself? You know, does he love me? Does she love me? Am I going to, all those things, those are cortex logic related fears, not amygdala yeah. related fears. Well, I'm fascinated by that. Your course sounds really interesting. Who would be the best fit for that? Anybody who feels stuck in fear-based thinking. And that could, so this course is, is, is generally applied. So it could be someone who has work, you know, career-based inertia, you know, relationship issues, even parenting. Anybody who feels stuck in thought patterns that don't serve them, or they feel like, why can't I just get out of this like this this cycle of wanting to speak up not doing it being afraid and then feeling bad about myself because i was afraid and then then just you know living my life the same way when i want to make change and i just don't know how so it's 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 really powerful for people who want to take the reins and shift their fear based thinking it is not for someone who wants a quick fix uh, they just want to, I just want to feel great, you know, after six easy modules, because each module is a little bit of work and there's, you know, assignments and there's things you have to do, but there's Zoom, there's Zoom group Zoom calls to a month. So there are opportunities to interface with others and with me. Um, so if you feel, you know, kind of like you're sleepwalking a little bit, like you're just a victim of your own thoughts. Yeah. It could be really helpful. It's, it's a process. Yes. And what about people though that, because when you say fear-based thinking, what if someone doesn't recognize that what they're doing is fear-based thinking? So like what kind of thoughts would, would someone be thinking that they should like, maybe recognize as fear-based? Yeah, like limiting belief systems, right? I'm not good enough. Imposter syndrome, right? Um, th this is all fear-based stuff. Um, I, you know, I was working with someone who really successful, you know, working in an investment bank, didn't know how to talk to her colleagues who were primarily male. And she was one of the few females in the office. Like she knew it was fear-based. She knew she was holding herself back. She just didn't know how to start. So I think if people feel like they're limiting themselves or they feel like they want to do something differently, they want to show up differently, but they don't really know how, it usually goes back to deeply rooted fear-based yeah. limiting belief patterns. Yeah. I would say that if you are not living a life that you love, if you're just not happy and just not living the life that you really want, you're not satisfied, I would say that you probably have fear-based thinking because there's something that's keeping you stuck in that place that you that really doesn't light you up. 
Right, right. And I and I always uh, I tend to shy away from the word happy only because it's so supercharged with so many things. But yeah, your point is well taken. Like if you just if what feels wrong, if something feels wrong, then it deserves your attention. And the fear is what's going to give you that information. But you have to spend a little time digging into that. And that's what it's so it's really very linear, like we dig in, and then we build on that. And after six modules, you have a toolbox that you yes. can, you know, use. Something that I hear people say a lot is, let's say they're miserable at work, because there was a time when I was really miserable at work. And Thankfully, I made some changes. It's better now. But there was a time I was just miserable. I hated my job. And people would say, well, you know, it's work. That's why they call it work. You know, it's not supposed to be fun. It's work. You know, you put your head down, you go in and you, you punch out a five or whatever it is. And I just thought that is so negative. And I think that people who say that it's almost like they're just convincing themselves. Yes. Like, and I would say there's some fear going on there. Of course. And and it's and I don't I want to be careful that it doesn't come off like, you know, being judgmental of people. We all do it. And it's this self-actualization exercise, right? It's like, wait a second, wait a second. Is that okay? Is that enough? You know, isn't it isn't it equally okay for me to strive for, you know, a fulfilling life that sparks me? Right. And how can I do that? Maybe the first step is figuring out how I'm holding myself back because perception is everything. Perception is reality. Right. It's not. Yeah. And then you work from there. But yeah, I don't I don't. When people say things, one of the best tools I've ever learned and that I teach, I think one of the most powerful tools we can teach each other is when people say something or react a certain way. Try to be compassionate and understand that it's coming from, they're doing it for a reason, right? They're yeah. saying those things for a reason. And that doesn't mean everything's okay that everybody says. But once you look at people that way and say, oh, they must have had, there's a reason for that. It Then it sort of normalizes things. It's a great equalizer. And then you don't take it on and, and then become reactive, right? And then just That's say, <laughs> I'm on my journey, they're on their journey, and we're going to figure it out. But I want to live a life that's fulfilling and sparks me and that's okay. And then yes. keep looking for that. But sometimes we need a little help and we need tools and we need strategies. Yeah. I'm with you there. Well, thank you, Nancy. I really enjoyed this. This is really fun. I, I, I love talking about this stuff with you and I have not talked about this stuff in depth before. So it Ooh. was really liberating for me. So thank oh, you. Good. Well, if you ever want to do it again, let me know. I'm like I say, I always tell people I'm very happy to get in your business and, and ask you personal questions. Well, it's it, if we all did it, imagine, right? With compassion and respect, imagine. So you sound like you're a great godmother, by the way. Thank She's you. a lucky girl. So thank and John's you. great. I had a nice chat with him and I'm talking to him today. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So anybody who uh, is wants more of Nancy, there's always her course. Good. And I'm going to ask you to tell us where people should look for you. I don't want to use that word should though. I feel like I shouldn't. Use that word. But anyway, um, and you can also head on over to um, John Knocklinger, my business partner's um, Instagram page, which is Divorce Shield, where you are going to be a guest on his podcast actually today. Yeah. And that will air soon. 
and oh, he's going to kill me. I'm forgetting the name of his podcast. <laughs> I think it's, it's fun. He's a men's divorce coach. And I think it's called getting divorced without getting screwed. <laughs> so there you go. If you want more of Nancy and to remind us where should people look for you? You can find me uh, on my website, Nancy R Burger, B-U-R-G-E-R.com. And you can there, you can follow me on, on social, across social media. And I'm also on Clubhouse and I have a room every week on Thursdays called Fear in All Forms. Thursdays at one o'clock Eastern time, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Awesome. So check that out. I'll have links to everything in the show notes and uh, maybe we'll see you again on here, Nancy. Thank you so much, Christina. It was really fun. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.